0: Hey there. Welcome to the Literary Escapes podcast. I'm Becky and I'm glad you're here today. If you're a fan of books that give you an escape or let you explore other cultures, then you're definitely in the right place. So I'm glad you've joined us today. Stick around. We've got a great author interview for you. So let's jump right in. So we have Fiona Davis with us today. Thank you so much for joining us. And this month in the book club, we are in New York City, which is um, why we've read The Lions of Fifth Avenue and have um, the lovely Fiona Davis with us today. So welcome, Fiona. Glad you're
1: here. Oh, thank you. Glad to be here. I just said hi to Anissa in the comments and it auto-corrected her name and spelled it wrong. I apologize. (laughs) We're off to a really good start. Let's just say that.
0: (laughs) Everybody is joining.
1: this is great this
0: should be wonderful <laughs> that's funny yeah autocorrect does some interesting things sometimes doesn't it <laughs> yes us into trouble yes it does a lot so hmm. but so i'm gonna go ahead and jump right in fiona how did you get into writing you told me earlier that you didn't start writing until you were 49 um so Wow, what, how did that all happen?
1: Yeah, I, I actually, I first got published at 49. So I started writing around my mid 40s. And yeah, you know, I came to New York and worked as an actress for about 10 years, which was a lot of fun and worked with a theater company and did Broadway and off Broadway and had a, a great time. Oh, cool. And then, yeah, and then I went off to Columbia Journalism School in my 30s and started working, writing about arts and fitness and health um and, and so yeah it, it feels for a like magazine or a newspaper or? yeah I worked for a theater magazine for a while and for a, an art show okay. and then ended up freelancing okay. which was it was great because you could kind of make your own schedule and
0: write and then as want.
1: I yeah which was great and then as I found you know I wanted to try and write this book the the dollhouse I I had the time to do it because I could kind of fit it in between the other the other jobs that I was doing okay and so, yeah I, I highly recommend changing your job every 10 years I think it pays off <laughs>
0: I I like that I that's pretty awesome so Broadway do you sing and dance and all of that or
1: no no I it <laughs> was great theater it was it was a couple plays one was a Russian play that wasn't on long very wasn't there very long. And the other was 3-1-X by Thornton Wilder, which you wouldn't think would go to Broadway, but it did, and it got nominated for a Tony, and it was with all, all, we were all friends who put it on, so it was just this kind of collaborative fun effort.
0: That's pretty cool. Wow, what a fun, that's one of the things I love about this is everybody's path to becoming an author is so different, and Mm. if anybody's thinking about writing a book, you can see you can come in from any angle and still do it. And I love that.
1: Yeah. And, and what we were talking about earlier was that, you know, it's not until later in life that I felt like I had anything to say in a book. I couldn't have written in my 20s because I didn't know anything about the world. And so now I can kind of put some of these life experiences into the book, like the Chelsea girls. It's about a playwright and an actress who are trying to put a play on Broadway during the McCarthy era. Oh, wow. And of course, yeah. that was something I could tap into pretty easily. Having having worked a little bit in the theater, so exactly, and and
0: this one had the Columbia Journalism School in it,
1: which exactly was interesting. Yeah, yeah, and that was fun because you know I I found this great book on the history of the journalism school, and it talked about how it was only fifteen percent women when it opened. It was amazing that it allowed women, right? Yeah. Yeah, and the women had two different tracks. So so the men went off to cover politics or murders. And the women were sent off to the orphanages and so in the book of course um you know laura really kind of fights against that because she feels it isn't fair and the good news is um now columbia is 75 percent women at the journalism school so things have changed
0: that they definitely have how interesting that's kind of crazy so how did you come up with the idea for the dollhouse
1: the dollhouse came about when i was looking for an apartment in new york city And my broker took me to the Barbizon 63 condo, which had been the Barbizon Hotel for women. And I learned it went condo in around 2005. And at that time, there were a dozen of the old time residents still living there. And they were grandfathered into rent control departments on the fourth floor while they built these luxury condos all around. them. Yeah. So you had like a guy in the penthouse who paid $17 million. And then you had, you know, the woman on the fourth floor who pays 240 a month if that.
0: holy moly! And
1: Lord. yeah, and I just thought what an interesting kind of dichotomy and, and how it shows how the city and the building and the residents have changed over time. Yeah. And I thought it would be a great article, but um, it just didn't work that way. And okay. I just couldn't shake it. And I thought, you know, maybe I'll try writing a book. And, and it was just kind of a lark, a bit of a challenge to see if I yeah. could pull something off. Okay. And how did you come up with what angle you wanted to go with? I love dual timeline historical fiction. And I just read a book called The Perfume Collector by oh, Kathleen. I read that one, yeah. Oh, good. Yeah, good I love one. that book. And I think I just read it. And so I thought, ooh, I want to do that. And if I'd known how hard it is to <laughs> kind of meld two timelines together and have an element of mystery and plot twists, right. I would have never done it. Um, but but it was a real challenge. So I really studied that book and I studied how she broke down the scenes. You know, what was the kind of the flow? Was, were amazing. things getting better for the character? Were they getting worse? And then modeled mine after that. So that helped okay. a lot. Mm-hmm. That's, a, that's interesting.
0: Now, we were talking to, um, last year, we were talking to Reese Bowen and she had just written her first dual timeline. And she said that she had to like write one completely then write the other one. And then lay them down her hallway trying to figure out where
1: they fit together I can figure that I do it the other way around where I I come up with the characters and then I figure out kind of the the plot of each timeline so before I even start writing so I know what each scene needs to be and then I write them all on post-it notes in different colors for each timeline and then I kind of map I map them out that way on a a wall that's a good idea yeah I can put the exactly flow up in
0: front of you to see and yeah, yes.
1: and then I create. I write the synopsis from that, and then that's the key that I work off of as I start writing the first draft.
0: Okay, and so how did you like just kind of keep doing buildings? How did that happen?
1: It was not planned. I <laughs> the book of the dollhouse did really well, and I think everybody was surprised because as a debut author, you're not, you yeah. know,
0: it's
1: That's like, exactly. yeah, <laughs> and, um, and it, it just had legs and started getting some nice recognition, and so I was walking along the Upper West Side, where I've lived for about 35 years here in New York, and I walked by the Dakota, and the light was hitting it, like it was just glowing, you know, like it was saying, pick me, and I thought, yeah, you know, it'd be fun to go snoop around in the Dakota if I could, Okay. So maybe I'll choose that one and build it from there. So it really happened pretty organically. It wasn't a planned thing of here's what I'm going to give to the world. It was very much like, well, what building do I want to go learn about next? Okay. And, and I was kind of off to the races. Once I did that one, I realized, oh, this is a thing.
0: Or <laughs> <laughs> it is now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Yeah. You can make this thing anyway, which is pretty cool.
1: Yeah, that, yeah. That's pretty I, have, cool. and New York's full of all kinds of amazing buildings. So. Oh my goodness! I joke around that by the thirtieth book, I'll be doing the gas station on the corner of Eleventh <laughs> Avenue. You know, <laughs> something like that. Or maybe move to a different city.
0: I don't know. <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah. It'd be fun. You know, I, I would love to go to London for a month and do research and set something there. There, there's the possibilities are are limitless. And whenever I travel, I, there's always some building in some city that you know has a great history to play with. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, that's so true. That's um, somebody had asked Anissa, Anissa. And if I said that wrong, I, I apologize. Yeah. He asked if you were ever to write about a building located in a different country what would, or a different city, what would it be? Yeah,
1: London I'd love place? to do London. I'd love to do the Globe Theater, maybe Ooh, something that like that. Yeah, or just, you know, I love cram- crumbling English manor houses. <laughs> there, there's yeah. so many good books set in those. There's something, something to play with there yeah
0: because the um oh, one of the bridges and it has um London Bridge I think it is nice. it has a thing over top and I think it's glass and they do yoga up there and I'm like oh, Who
1: is that that's so cool <laughs> about London is everything is so old mm-hmm. you know you're you're really talking centuries yeah, our old
0: and their old is very different yeah
1: right I think the longest I've done in it's been a hundred years in the, the address, which was 1880s and 1980s. But other than that, they've been pretty compressed, you know, maybe 50 years, maybe 20. Um, so not, not huge leaps by any means. That would be
0: interesting to do one that's so far apart that, yeah, to see how that would work. That would be, yeah, there's, that's, Susie said, there's so many possibilities. There definitely are. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> yes, yes. So it sounds like you have to outline your stories pretty well because of the dual timelines and the el- mystery element that runs through it. So you get your pieces in there
1: that you have to. Yeah, definitely. I definitely pre-plan it. And then I write a very fast first draft just to see what the skeleton of the story looks like and get to know the characters. And then I go back and I, I kind you of know, in. do about 10 different rounds of edits as I add to each scene, either details about you know the room or what they're wearing, and just start yeah. on all the all the fun stuff on top of that. That's but a big idea, yeah, yeah. Because the main thing is to make sure the story works and everything makes sense. Because when you're writing, you often miss things that seem so obvious to your editor well, or your agent. especially
0: if it's all up in here.
1: Yeah,
0: you don't always get it all out. I'm guessing. So
1: yeah, yeah. Like today, I uh, I was working on a scene and I realized, oh, I have this character saying she's going away for the weekend. And then she shows up, you know, a half hour later and is an in- integral part of the scene. <laughs> I'm like, no, that. yeah. <laughs> that's not going to work. <laughs>
0: that's, and, and then I assume after you finish with all your drafts, it goes to someone else who catches things like that. If you, if you haven't.
1: Yeah. After about four or five drafts, it goes to my agent. Okay. He gives it a read and, and gives me comments. And I think as a former journalist, I really appreciate having someone else's view. You know, nothing is precious. I'm I'm very happy to change things to make it work. And if you send it to someone you really trust, it can only make it better. Nice. So then I'll revise it even more. And then it finally goes to my editor. Okay.
0: Okay. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I would assume being an editor or being a journalist that your work got chopped up and changed around and all of that probably pretty regularly just because nature of the beast
1: yeah Yeah. when you're when you're writing you just can't you can't see the forest for the trees many times and so they'll say oh you know the, the article should start with this paragraph and you're like oh yeah of course that's much better and so it is a collaboration and even publishing a book is such a collaboration I work with a great team at Dutton and it's publicists and marketing people and the person who does the cover Um, you know, it's just an amazing team that helps to put together a book. It's, it's really a a joint effort.
0: I can't imagine self-publishing. I know a lot of art, a lot of authors do it, Mm -hmm. but trying to do all those different pieces or figure it all out on your own just seems like,
1: (laughs) yeah, yeah, I agree. I I'm, I'm in awe of people who who are able to do it and do it really successfully. I mean,
0: there's a lot of people that do it well. There's some people that They've got a great book, but you know, ten people read it because
1: mm-hmm.
0: you can only do so much. And one of them's your mom. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And hopefully, she liked it. But <laughs> yeah. I was reading in your bio, you one of your books was chosen for something called
1: One Book, One Community. I was just curious what that was. Yeah, One Book, One Community. You can find it around the states, and it, what happens is, it's either a state or a town decides to read one book. Oh, cool. and, they, and, and so I, it's, I've, I've been chosen, some of the books have been chosen for um, Arkansas was one, and then for the whole state, and then for a town just up here in Westchester, it was chosen. And, and what happens is everybody reads the book at the same time, and then they have events, usually in person in the old days, yeah. where everyone can go and meet the author, and, or they'll have an expert. For example, they did um, The Masterpiece, which is about Grand Central. And for that one, I gave a talk, but they also had experts in and, and just, you know, a way so that you can approach the book from a lot of different angles. Okay. Yeah. A good
0: idea. We did, um, I worked at an elementary school and we would do one book, one school and oh, yeah. the whole school read the same book. So it's a similar-ish idea. And I love that. Exactly. I, I, reading in community, even just a book club is, it brings so many different opinions to the story that you might never have thought of. And I love that yeah um patty asked how did your first book get picked up for publishing what was that process like for you
1: yeah you know the 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 world of journalism is completely different from the world of fiction so i had no leg up there you know i didn't know anyone who published books i had no inside scoop and so what i started doing is i started going to writers conferences Mm -hmm. and you know if there was a panel of agents i'd go there and you know, hear agents speak. And if there was one, I remember on a panel who I thought, oh, she's, she seems great. And so when the book was ready, I reached out to her and, and said, you know, I've written this manuscript. I heard you speak. This is what you said. And I think just that was enough to get me in the door where okay. she, she went ahead and read it and, um, and reached out and said, you know, I love your book and, and let's talk. And so it was just laying that little bit of groundwork so mm-hmm. it, it showed that I, I tried, you yeah. know,
0: yeah. as opposed
1: to kind of cold calling or, or, you know, cold emailing people.
0: Through the phone book, like in the old days. <laughs> yeah, yes, exactly. Interesting. Okay. And so you decide on a building. How do you do your research on it and find the stories of the building?
1: Yeah, you know, I, I do a real deep dive. I, I have an architectural historian here in New York named Andrew Alpern. And he's in his 80s. And he has a a kind of a photographic memory of every street and every building on New York. And so the first thing I do is I take him out to lunch. And I say, here's the building. I'm thinking, what do you think? And he so for lines of Fifth Avenue, we were talking over lunch. And he said, Oh, you know, there was this terrible book theft at Columbia University at their Butler library. And I know the head librarian who was there when all these rare books were, were being stolen. It was like, $3.8 $3.8 million of rare books over the course of three months, and no one could figure out how the thief was getting in and out. And wow. the way he was getting in and out is the way I describe in the book.
0: Okay. And so
1: I kind of took that theft and transplanted it to the New York Public Library and was able to, to reach out to the librarian and say, you know, can I talk to you? And I interviewed her a couple times about what it was like you know, what was it like? We're, were the staff turning on each other? What's your daily life like? What, what's it like to curate an exhibit? And I think it's getting those really specific details mm-hmm. that helps make the book work because you're not wasting time describing a room. It's really about, you know, the action of the plot. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so that, that's kind of how I approach it.
0: Nice. Okay. That's uh... How interesting. And um, Devin asked, what was the inspiration for the lines at Fifth Avenue?
1: Yeah, you know, the building, I tend to start first with the building. Mm -hmm. And I'd done so many author talks where people came up to me after and said, oh, you should do the New York Public Library. that I thought, okay, you know, I'll look into it. I don't know, you know, I don't know if it will work. Um, And then I found this article in the New York Times from the 50s, And it talked about how the superintendent was retiring after 30 years and that he had lived in the library in a seven room apartment with his wife and his three kids. It talked about how his daughter was born in the library
0: wow, (laughs) and how the kids would play baseball,
1: right? I know. And the kids would play baseball using books as bases until they got caught. It talked about how his son raised pigeons on the roof. And the minute I saw that, you know, I'm, I'm always looking for the surprises. Yeah. And so to see that a family lived in the New York Public Library made me think, oh, yeah, you know, that I can create a story around that. And that'll be fun.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I love that there really is an apartment there.
1: Yeah. People. Yeah. Have lived in. I mean, yeah, I was able to be
0: in the New York Public Library is just. Right.
1: you needed the super there because you had to keep the the boiler running and the furnace like you you needed someone on site it was like a small city really it's such a huge building and so they really needed someone there and now I was able to get a behind the scenes tour so now it's offices and storage but you can still see you know what the floor plan was where the rooms were and it overlooked an inner courtyard um, with these huge windows. It was really an, a, a kind of a secret stairway. It's, it's lovely.
0: Fun, that's, that's very clever. So your characters, um, we got some mixed reviews on Laura. Some people liked her, some people didn't. So how did you decide to make
1: Laura who she was? Yeah, has everyone read the book so we can talk spoilers or no? Okay, good, because before, let me just tell you this one. When I was giving this tour of the, of the library, and I went up to the apartment. I knew I wanted the theft to be using the um, the dumb waiter. Oh right, right, because that that mimicked the one that happened at Columbia. And the minute I walked into the living room of the apartment, there was this dumbwaiter. It was like, okay, <laughs> you know, that's what's going to happen. So yeah, so so Laura, um, you know, I think the thing is she's a woman kind of ahead of her time. Mm-hmm. And she wants everything. She wants a career. She wants financial independence. And she wants a family. And you, you had to choose back then. It was not easy. And she's not really supported by her husband. Right. And so because of that, she ends up making choices that I think today we look back and go, well, that's, you know, a little dubious. But for her, especially in terms of her son, you know, back then, kids when they were 12 or 13 were pretty much grown up. You didn't have that helicopter parenting that you have today, and so you know you would. They were out doing things, and so in a way, Harry running off and becoming very independent wasn't that surprising. And you know, I felt like she stuck around for about four years trying to connect, trying to connect, and then had this opportunity in London and decided to take it. But it's a it's a tricky thing because a lot of what my characters decide, especially in the older time periods, um, are questionable today. Yeah. you know and and rightly so
0: on her yeah.
1: uh, choice to cheat on her husband mm-hmm.
0: was also right. kind of
1: curious and yeah I and I to... <laughs> I read about the heterodoxy club which actually existed it was a club downtown and was around for about 30 years in fact there's a nonfiction book being published on it very soon oh, which I'm, I'm yeah it, it's yeah yeah it's coming out in the summer I think and um you know, I just hadn't heard of it. I was so surprised at this all-female club. And so I knew I wanted to get Laura down there. And then, you know, in my books, because you're dealing with historical fiction, it tends to be not very diverse. You know, it is you you kind of have to reflect the time
0: yeah. where
1: people weren't intermingling the way they are now. But what I learned about Greenwich Village in the 1910s was just how forward it was. You could be who you were. You could hold hands. You could walk down the street and and it, it really embraced all kinds of people, and I thought you know it'd be it'd be fun to kind of bring that up and and show people who are you know back then we're we're doing something different. And so the doctor right. is based on a woman named S. Josephine Baker, who was a very famous kind of urban doctor who made huge strides here in New York City in terms of yeah. saving children who otherwise would have died. And, um, and I, so I knew I wanted to create a character like her and I just thought, yeah, let's, let's, let's play here, you know, since, since oh, it reflects what was going on at the time correctly.
0: And do, do the characters kind of lead where the story goes? Do you find Yeah,
1: Yeah, definitely. You know, you figure out the character. I knew who Laura would be and then you figure out what's her goal and then what could get in the way of that right? Because you don't want your characters to have an easy life. <laughs> that's not fun to read. It's not fun to and, read, right? <laughs> yeah. And so you figure out what kind of obstacles would be in her way. Um, and what's the worst thing that could happen to her? Yeah. And that's where, I, that's where I start writing the book. It's like, you know, Indiana Jones, right? He has a terrible fear of snakes. And what's the worst thing that could happen to him is that he's trapped in a pit full of snakes. Right, and that's what happens. It's like, and, hey, go there. <laughs> yeah, and I think in that way you give the reader a ride, you know? There and and how is this character going to pull out of this? What's going to have to change in her mindset in order to make it through?
0: Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. I like that thought process. Mm-hmm. Um, Anissa asked, how much did the book change from the first draft to the finished book?
1: Yeah, it, it did change a lot. Um, you know, uh, uh, definitely the, the main structure was there, but for example, in, um, in one of the first drafts, um, I had a dead body <laughs> because, um, you know, I, I kind of was playing around with this idea that in the modern times, there's a dead body and it's, it's kind of, you know, connected to what's going on later. And it was the, the curator who ends up, you know, getting a, a new job in okay. this version. She was killed in the other, oh. I think it was a guy even. And, um, and I remember I reached out to the librarians who were so helpful and answered all my questions. And I reached out to one and I said, look, if you had to hide a dead body in the library, where would you put it? And she wrote back right away. Oh, down in the basement next to the, you know, in the carpenter's room. And uh, yeah, didn't bother one bit. And, uh, and so that was really fun. They were very helpful in that way. Um, but in the end I I pulled that out because it just it muddied the water okay okay interesting so
0: who has been your favorite character that you've
1: created oh what a good question um I think in the most recent book um the Magnolia Palace the character of Helen Frick is it's based on a real woman Helen Frick who lived was Henry Clay Frick's daughter and she lived in the Frick mansion and Um, she was just a prickly temperamental I'm drawn to those types I think Um, but she was you know a woman who when her father died in 1919 she inherited 38 million dollars and that made her the richest single woman in America and she went on to do incredible things at the same time she went on to alienate a ton of people and I just loved this woman who was both vulnerable and temperamental and and so I think she was a really fun one. I was quite nervous about creating a person who's based on a real person. Yeah. Uh, in the end, I've heard from so many readers say that they love her that I, I feel like, okay, we got that right.
0: Okay. That's very cool. And did did this um Helen Frick or is there any of the family left or
1: yeah, there are. And and they the ones I've heard from really love the book and are very supportive. So that's kind of okay. wonderful. Yeah, that's another layer
0: in there when when you're writing. Yeah. Yeah,
1: and, and the, the Frick collection, um, who it's the museum now that the house is now a museum and, and they've been so wonderful we've been doing a bunch of collaborative things together and it's been really fun uh, working with the, the staff there.
0: That's, that's really cool. I um, think I saw on social media that you did, um, you were at a talk or something there. Um, yeah,
1: I, we, we did a video of me and one of the curators Yeah, and we talked about the paintings in the book for about a half hour. And they're going to condense that down to like a six or seven minute piece and, oh, and it'll be on social media soon.
0: Okay. And That's
1: it was brilliant. So it, it was quite, quite something.
0: It's fun to be part of something like that. How interesting. Yeah. So who's been the most challenging character to write?
1: Ooh, hmm. Let me think about that. Ah, I have to look at the books and see. Um, you know, probably Clara in the Masterpiece, which is the one set at Grand Central. Okay, um, because she's another. She's interesting. She's based on a real woman, Helen Dryden, who back in the nineteen twenties, she was a, a very famous illustrator. She did all these Vogue covers, and you know the watercolors, which are really beautiful from the tens and twenties.
0: Yeah,
1: and she was the first faculty member at the first female faculty member at the Grand Central School of Art, which was this art school in Grand Central. And she went on to do Broadway sets and costumes. Um, she consulted with Studebaker Cars. In the 1930s, she was the highest paid female artist in America. And then she goes missing and she turns up in the 50s in a, a kind of a welfare home. And she'd just fallen on hard times and could no longer no longer work and ended up Um, in an asylum. And so it's this woman who's really been lost to history, which is one of the things I'm very interested in. And so creating her as a fictional person who I call Clarice, because she doesn't have the same trajectory as Helen Dryden, was was tough because she's another one who's like Laura, she wants something very badly. And she's not afraid to kind of, you know, roll heads to get it. But those are the characters I'm drawn to. So And that was fun because she's, you know, connects later in the book as well. So you have her early life and her later life. Okay, nice. So Lynn had
0: asked um, what um, buildings in New
1: York are on your radar for maybe future books? Yeah, so there's a couple of things going on Um, in the summer. I'll be publishing a short story through Amazon that's part of a historical fiction anthology. And that one's set at Carnegie Hall. Uh, and so I'm excited for that to come out. And then um, the next book is set at Radio City Music Hall. Ooh. So that's fun. And that's from the point of view of a Rockette in the 1950s. I've been talking to all these Rockettes who are in their 80s wow. now Ooh. to get find out what life was like and you know it was like a city it really was there was a dormitory and a medical station and a lounge and a cafeteria and these women really lived there because they did four yeah. shows a day for wow. three weeks straight and uh so that's really fun I've been I've been writing that and we're well into the weeds of it
0: How oh, fun so have you learned how to
1: become a rock <laughs> oh I wouldn't stand a chance I have the flexibility of an 80 year old so there's just no way <laughs> But, um, but what they do is incredible because it's so precise. You know, it really is a yeah. machine. It's, it's um, amazing
0: to watch them. I agree. Yeah. 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 Absolute respect for what they do. Yeah, definitely. Um, okay. Yeah. Alina had asked, um, considering that you always have landmark buildings, does your story, story start based on the building or the protagonist? And it sounds like the building.
1: Yeah, yeah, almost all of them started with the building, except for the Chelsea Girls, and that was because I met this woman in her late nineties, who had been an actress in New York during the fifties, during the McCarthy era, and she talked about how what it was like in New York theater when all that was going on, and um, you know she she just was so um, outspoken and angry still, and had so much passion about it that that's what led me down that road, and then I chose the Chelsea Hotel to kind of match with the storyline
0: okay okay mm-hmm. um delores asks will there eventually be a fiona davis whoops it just went up hang on
1: <laughs> a fiona davis landmark tour in new york city what oh that? that's so funny you know what's so funny is there's a boston book club and uh, they're known as club red which stands for read eat drink and they come down every year and they tour you know whatever Things are in whatever book I'm writing. So they're coming down next Saturday. Oh, how fun. Saturdays. And yeah, they're going to do a tour of the Frick. And then we're going to meet for lunch at Sardi's. It's, it's a blast. So yeah, I, I love you that. Know, it, it, seems to be, it seems to be bubbling along. So we'll see what happens.
0: Well, we should have packed up and come up there.
1: <laughs> yeah, here we go.
0: We'll have to keep that in mind. <laughs> yes. And um, Patty asked, how, how do you meet all these cool people that are people that are in their 80s and
1: 90s? You know, it's putting out feelers. Um, so with the the raquette, which was wonderful, was um, she reached out to me through my website, and she oh. said, "Look, I'm I'm in my 80s. I was a former raquette, and if you want to know the secrets of Radio City, you should call me." So that you know landed in my lap, which could That's not. Pretty awesome. Her. I called her right away. Yeah. Uh, and and for the others, it was you know either through a friend. Um, the actress was a friend of a friend of mine. Okay. Um, And, and so it was just, you know, I've been here for long enough that I, I have contacts with people, you know, and, and, and the thing is people love to talk. They want to share their stories. So it's great to reach out. Yeah. I think as a journalist, I learned that, you know, you shouldn't be afraid of asking someone questions because most people are really happy to share their stories with you. And that's where the good stuff is.
0: Especially the older people, there's nobody who really wants to listen to them. It seems like, so they've got some really good stories.
1: They've got the best, yeah. the best stories. Yeah.
0: Oh, interesting. That's fun. So um, let's see. I thought I had seen another one over here. Yeah, people are ready for your tour. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Excellent. Great. I
0: love that. Um, let's see. Who is this? Barb asked, How did you choose Mrs. Belmont? Oh, is that
1: from the short stories? Are we talking about? Yeah. Okay. And- yeah, that's Alva Vanderbilt Belmont. Yeah, so that was part of a, a short story anthology that I did with M.J. Rose where we asked historical fiction authors to write a story around one day in New York in 1915 during a suffrage, a suffragette parade. Okay. And we have, it's an amazing anthology. We have Chris Bojalian, Kristen Hanna did the um, foreword, um, Paula McLean. Um, it, it's just full of, full of heavy hitters. And um, and so I chose Alva Val- Vanderbilt Belmont to it to be the protagonist of my story, which is the last one in the book. And I chose her because she was really active in the suffrage movement. She really felt strongly about it and gave lots of money and organized. At the same time, when they had the parades in the beginning, she wouldn't go in them. She thought it was terrible. It was too much like being a streetwalker. She would not step foot. Wow. Um, she would she would have her chauffeur drive her. <laughs> along the route but she wouldn't walk and then so my story is about you know what what was the day that she changed her mind okay what made her want to be out there physically and part of the group and tell me the name of that book again it's called stories from suffragette city
0: okay okay
1: and it just came out in paperback so
0: nice okay that sounds really interesting so what are you working on right now
1: I am working on that Radio City book. Okay. It's staring at me over there. Um, I'm kind of in the third round of edits and okay. kind of getting it into shape. And there's just a lot of a lot of travel this month for book talks and things. So I'm trying to fit it in between those. Yeah, which is great. It's a it's a wonderful problem to have. Good. Yeah, exactly. Good problem to have. How long does it take you to do um,
0: to get it to a point where I guess it's ready for your Agent.
1: Um, it usually takes about six to seven months, I'd say. The total, the total thing takes about a year and a half okay. to researching to turning it in and getting a final approval from the the publisher. And do you do like one book at a time, or? Oh yeah, yeah. I cannot multitask. That would be a disaster. I'd have the yeah, I'd wrong see. character in the wrong timeline. Yeah, I can barely keep track of two. So <laughs> <laughs> I. I marvel
0: at the authors that have like four books that come out during the year, and they're always, oh, no. I mean, there's always a piece of one of them going on, and
1: yeah, Marie Benedict's been doing that, and she writes wonderful books where she's co-writing with someone else and writing her own and doing short yeah. stories. I'm in I awe her yeah. today. I'm hoping to okay.
0: <laughs> hoping to get her in here, so she's, great. she's lovely that's it would be fun to chat with her. that would be so interesting, so. Um the rockets are next. Do you know, do you have a idea on what's after that or not really? No,
1: no I, I try not to think ahead. Um, I just take it one book at a time. And usually as I'm wrapping up one book, the next one starts to fall into my lap or I, I start getting an idea and starting to play with that. So, so far, so far it's worked out where I haven't had to discard anything.
0: That's, that's really neat. I like that. Um, it's so interesting because some authors have like this whole list of ideas that they keep and draw from and others don't and they you know it doesn't seem to matter which way you go which I, I think that's so interesting. You get what you need when you need it.
1: Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, yeah it kind of works out that way. And it helps being right in the city, I think, because there's so much going on around me and I'm yeah constantly looking up. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Yeah. How fun. Huh. And so you said that you're traveling a lot coming up. Um, what kind of things have you got on your
1: horizon? Yeah, I head off tomorrow to Tucson for the Tucson Festival of Books, which is a great, great festival. They get about 100,000 people. And I'm on a panel with Nina de Gramont, who wrote The Christie Affair oh. and Beatrice Williams, who is of course has written everything and is amazing. So that'll be fun. And then off to Florida for a, a fundraiser for a library and then later to Ohio and Pennsylvania, so. Nice,
0: some yeah. good stuff, that's, yeah, fun that we can get out and about again, I love that,
1: so yeah.
0: very nice. How do you organize um, your days to make space for writing regularly?
1: I, think that's- I uh, Yeah, you know, when you have the, the book just came out January 25th, Magnolia Palace, okay. and the demand for that has been beyond anything of, you know, it, it's been slowly growing, and now it's it's a little crazy. (laughs) And so I'm doing a lot of events this month and then taking some time off next month to really get back into the writing. You just have to compartmentalize, I guess. I'm kind of new to this problem. So trying to figure (laughs) out. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That's
0: interesting. Um, Yeah. Cause I mean, for the past two years, even if your books were popular, you couldn't go anywhere. So Yeah. Yeah,
1: yeah, right. Zoom made it so much easier to stay home and write, but I have to say it's so nice to see people oh, in okay. real life these days, and to you know hear people laugh and interact with people directly. It's it's been great, so I'm taking full advantage of it.
0: Yeah, I I agree. That's it's so nice to be able to get out and be with people again, especially book people. Those are yes, those are the fav- Those are the best. Um, Alina had asked. Um, I'm guessing that as a writer that you're also a reader and so what has what is what is it you're reading right now
1: um I am reading um the, 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 the Jane Green's new book which comes out soon Sister Stardust oh, and it's I've a 1960s groovy London hippies oh, set. Fun. it's a little different okay um and it's great yeah that comes out I think June sometime in June okay and uh, gotten early copies. So that's where I'm reading now. That's fun.
0: Yeah, it's fun getting early copies of books. And yeah. but then you I, I always forget, oh, you know, because you can't talk about it with people because nobody else has read it. Right. And, yes. so that's always kind of funny. Um, what was this is from Martha? What was your favorite book that you've written?
1: Ooh, it's hard to tell. You know, I loved writing the Magnolia Palace. I think whatever the latest one was is the one yeah. you're, you love. So I would say Magnolia Palace, but that will change as I write the next one.
0: Penny said that um a detail from the lions that piqued some curiosity you had you compared Claude's hair to the hair of a dressage horse dressage
1: horse yeah uh, um do you ride that's so funny i love that you picked that up penny <laughs> um i did ride when i was a kid i i rode and jumped and that kind of thing so um and you know around here in new york if you just go north of new york there's a lot of horse farms and dressage and that kind of thing so i think that's why oh sister stardust is april 5th thank you anisa so yeah so that's probably is what came from that that's so funny you picked up on that i forgot (laughs) i wrote that
0: (laughs) and he must be around horses as well (laughs) yeah okay Let's see. Um, Barb says, I'm hoping that Magnolia Palace will be chosen for the virtual book discussion offered by the Frick.
1: Ooh, that would be great. Yeah. Fingers yeah. crossed. Yeah.
0: That would be fun. Very mm-hmm. cool. Very nice. So um, how do you prefer keeping in touch with people?
1: Oh, um, you know, I, through my website, you can sign up. I have a newsletter that goes out every so often, and that will list whatever's coming up or new events or any news. And so that's been really a great way. And then I'm on Instagram and Facebook, not as much on Twitter, okay. but you can find me on Instagram and Facebook. I'm Fiona Davis books on Twitter and Fiona Davis author on Instagram. And I, I try to post things like, you know, um, photos of the research or photos of the real people who characters are inspired by. And if you go on my website on the, the, um, any of the book pages, you'll find a book club pick kit,
0: okay. which is
1: fun with questions. And, you know, that's the one for Magnolia palace has a, a map of some of the things that are in the book. So yeah. Oh,
0: yeah. Very cool. Okay. Very good. So
1: let's see, has your life been changed a lot since becoming an author?
0: I love that question. Ooh,
1: yeah, definitely. Definitely. You know, it's, a uh, it's a different kind of way of working where you're alone for a long period of time. And there's suddenly you're in front of a ton of people. <laughs> um, and so there's quite a lot of contrast, but I really like it. Like I love being holed up and just researching and quiet and, you know, working away, but it's great to travel for a few days and go meet readers. So it's, yeah. it's yeah. and And the whole thing of getting up and talking in front of people, I never thought I'd be able to do it. And now I just love it. You know, I didn't realize what a, yeah, it's funny because
0: what a ham I am. tend to be introverted a, a good chunk of the time. Yeah. And you're right because maybe you don't want to get up and talk. <laughs> and so it's interesting yeah. that um it's led to that and that you enjoy it. So
1: that's that's pretty cool. Yeah, oh it's great. Highly recommended and you know it, it's not too late. It's uh you can change it at any time. It's good fun.
0: What has been um one of the most interesting research pieces that you've come across in your digging through the old buildings?
1: Ooh, you know, I loved um, going into the Dakota and, you know, going into the basement where there's this room of, you know, cloth-footed bathtubs and another room of pocket doors, because when you remodel, they keep everything oh. from the original apartment. They don't throw anything out anymore. And so you have elevators down there and Um, And so it's just this really cool room of these artifacts that are still being saved.
0: Wow. How interesting. Mm -hmm. That's pretty cool. Huh. You wonder what the heck they're going to do with them all,
1: huh? I think, you know, some people remodel and they strip everything down and do something radical, but then the new owner wants to come in and they want to put everything back. So I think that's why they Mm -hmm. keep them. I know one of the old elevators ended up being a bar in someone's apartment.
0: So oh, fun. <laughs> Very cool.
1: People are so clever.
0: <laughs> that's fun. So, you have lived in New York for how long?
1: About 35 years now. Yeah, I came right after college and just never left.
0: That's awesome. And so, what are some of your places around New York City?
1: Well, there's some great places in Grand Central Terminal. There's a bar called the Campbell Bar. I see people nodding. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, that's a great one. Because it's up, sort of up a secret stairway. It's on the very southwest corner of the building. And you go outside to get to the stairway and go up into it. And it's this beautiful old space that's got a huge fireplace and a beautiful bar and stained glass windows. And it was the office of one of the board directors of the train of the railway station back then. And so back in the old days, it had, you know, an organ and a balcony. And that's where he entertained And now it's called the Campbell Bar. And it's really, it's like stepping back in time. That's cool. Dolores said that a
0: postcard postcard from the Campbell apartment is one of her bookmarks.
1: Oh, I love
0: that. That's (laughs) That's fun. Nice. And do you you tend to do, or maybe just because of the timing lately, it's not, it hasn't been a thing, but um, uh, like book events around New York City? Um, is that, we did,
1: we did the launch party for, um, the Magnolia palace down at Rizzoli books, which is a great bookstore downtown. And that was a lot of fun. That was one of the first times everybody was in person and there were about 90 of us. It was just a, a great night. And so, yeah, and, and there's more and more, um, book talks and, and more authors will get together for lunch or dinner or drinks, which is what we used to do in the past. So things are definitely opening up and there's a lot of opportunities here.
0: Nice. Are you part of a writer group that gets together
1: on the regular or? Not a formal group, but there's a really wonderful group of female authors here in New York or nearby in the suburbs. And we all somehow got together and, you know, a group of us formed a Zoom group during COVID. And we would chat every Thursday for happy hour and just touch base as to what's going on and what's the new normal and it's a wonderful group of people. It's Amy Popol and Jamie Brenner, Nicola Harrison, um, Linda Lloydman. And so it's really fun because we're all at different stages of creating books. So really someone's cool, coming yeah. up with an idea or someone's about to publish. And you can really compare and support each other as we yeah. go
0: through it. That's I love um, with writers, especially that it's not a competition and how supportive. They are of each other, and oh yeah, you know when somebody else has a book coming out, they're just as excited to celebrate it as their own, and you know get it out there to people. And I love that. There's not too many other industries it seems like where there's that kind of camaraderie, and I think that's really special.
1: And, and I think it's like you know if if someone likes a Kate Quinn book, they might like mine, or they might like Beatrice Williams. And people don't you know people read who read read yeah. like crazy. And so there's more than enough books to go around and more than enough readers to share. Exactly. And the more you share, the yeah. for everybody it feels like. So yeah. I love that.
0: Yeah, that's really cool. Well, thank you so much for sharing your time with us today. Really oh. appreciated this.
1: Thank you. This was wonderful. And thank you, everybody, for joining us on this day. Yeah. So was thank you. Terrific.
0: Thank you, everybody, for showing up today. This has been a lot of fun. And I will put the replay out there for everybody to see if they'd like to. And um, look forward to seeing your book when it comes out. That'll be fun. All right. Yes, I'll I'll get back to work. (laughs) Well, And I'm glad that you're missing the snowstorm that's coming.
1: So, yes, yes, exactly. (laughs) Thank you, everybody. So nice to see everyone. I appreciate it.
0: Thanks for joining me today on the Literary Escape podcast. If you enjoy hearing the the behind-the-book story, then join me in the Literary Escape Society. We're a community of travelers who love books, or maybe book lovers who love to travel. Either way, if you need an escape, a literary escape, come join us as we read our way around the world together, one book at a time. Check out the show notes to learn more about the Literary Escape Society. And we'll see you next time on the next episode.